Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Tread victoriously. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Forlow Magazine is a magazine for you. Forlow cannot be found in a storefront or on a bookshelf but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit ForlowMagazine.com to order your subscription today. On this week's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Clifton Slay. Clifton is a father, a paramedic, dirt pilot, special forces, canine handler, search and rescue, and founder of Poison Spider Customs. Clifton, it's great to have you on board here and talk about your life and history in off-road and uh, before that and how you got into off-road. And, you know, I, I'd i like to say I've known you for a long time and hope to get to know you a lot better with this conversation. So thank you for coming on board. Yeah, thank you, Big Rich. Uh, it's it's an honor to be asked to be on your, your podcast. So I do my best uh, with my memory <laughs> of all these years. and. Uh, See if I can get get it as accurate as I can remember. Yeah, no worries. Uh, one of the things that I've le- I've realized myself is that I can remember stories, situations, things that happened, but I cannot necessarily put an exact date on things. And as oh, we get yeah. older, you know, it's like, oh, it's it happened twenty two <laughs> years ago, but I couldn't tell you what day it happened. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Well, I'll try to stay in the right decade. Let me know. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so the the first thing that I need to ask you is where were you born and raised? I'm from Denver, Colorado. Uh, raised here mostly. I spent some time in Arkansas. My father is an archaeologist there and um, stayed there. And I was in the military. I traveled around and uh, the different um, army bases and stuff, but came home to Colorado and still here. Okay, cool. You, uh, where did you primarily go to school? Um, say, grade school to begin with. Oh gosh, uh, let's see. Uh, Pulton Elementary, which is <laughs> it's in Aurora, Colorado, and uh, yeah, so that that area, so just around the Denver area, all through school, and then um, yeah, uh, college stuff as well. And then you said your dad was an archaeologist, so you were moving. Was he doing like dig site type stuff or? Yeah, my dad was a was a huge influence on me. Uh, he's a specialized in native 
Native Americans and um, prehistory. So I, I, so I grew up with my dad on dig sites in the dirt. Uh, with old bandanas and arrowheads and all that kind of stuff. So um, definitely uh, groomed me to a life in the dirt for sure. And just the, just the appreciation of the outdoors. Well, that's awesome. I I love the, I guess you'd call it the, the Neo-American history. You know, anything that happened in the, you know, on our continent through the, you know, through the years and the study of, of how man evolved here. I, I find that quite fascinating. Yeah, it made for a unique childhood for sure. And I, I appreciated it, um, but I appreciate it more as an adult now. Um, just realizing the exposures and the his perspectives. And like I said, it ties into off-road as well. Not into the Jeeps and stuff necessarily, but just um, the appreciation of being outdoors and mountaineering and that sort of stuff. And how I still sort of tie all that together is a huge influence from my dad. Okay. So you said that uh, you went through school in the Aurora, Denver area. Um, did you graduate in that area or were you just, was the moving around um, come after that or? No, I did. Um, I went through most of my high school um, in, Ar- Ar- in high, I'm sorry, in, uh, in Arkansas, but came back for my senior year in Denver and actually saw a lot of my friends from grade school and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I finished here. And then went straight in the military. Okay. We'll get to the military here in a minute. Explore the schooling a little bit more. When you, uh, how many years were you in Arkansas? Four years. Okay. So like eighth grade through 11th and then senior year of high school back in Aurora? Sounds accurate, uh, Rich. Yeah, yeah, about like that, like 13 to 17, I think, something like that. Um, Ages 13, 17, that's Arkansas. Then finished up here. Was there a, a large gap in lifestyle from Colorado to Arkansas? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, Arkansas, you're a bit of a celebrity coming from a big city. And Colorado, it seemed exotic, I think, to a lot of the people there at the time. Um, just Bible Belt stuff versus more progressive attitudes here in Colorado um, was a bit of a shock for me. Um, time, uh, Clintons were the governor of the state and um, not that that was necessarily significant, but I remember them coming to our school and um, telling us that Ozzy Osbourne and Motley Crue and Judas Priest and all those and Led Zeppelin were all devil worshipers and that kind of stuff. That was my first exposure to the uh, someday <laughs> president. And of course, those were all the, all the bands I loved. So um, uh, I was definitely riding my, my bike around with the boom box playing Motley Crue, shout out the devil and all that stuff. So it was, made me a bit of a pariah in that small town. So <laughs> <laughs> I I can understand that. I can understand that. <laughs> I I kind of felt the same way when I moved to southern Utah. And uh when my son Little Rich um started eighth grade when we made the move there. And I can remember like the first day of school his teacher asked him, you know, what was uh you know, what religion are you? And you know, we were kind of, I've always considered myself, and I just say this as a joke, agnostic with atheist tendencies. And, sure, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and he goes and says, I'm a Darwinist. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And that went over really well. 
<laughs> I bet it did not. Um, <laughs> well, I will I will um, parrot your story a bit in that uh, I actually took a a world history class there, and this will give you sort of an idea. And it was actually a Bible study class. Now I'm not not saying that's not history, but um, the depth of the history, you know, was only a couple thousand years old, so it was a little bit tough. And um, I argued a couple points and ended up actually getting expelled from school because um, some of my upbringing of my father, of course, didn't buck religion, but it uh, also expanded beyond, you know, those years. So uh, I, my dad actually challenged the teacher to a to an all school debate on history and to try to get me back into school. And of course the school denied because my dad would have, would have cleaned him up and probably not supported some of the, the themes that were being pushed forward. Right. But, but um, yeah, so I get that rich kind of with some of the same stuff that your son went through. I think I did as well. So when you were at that age, were you, Athletic, scholastic, or did your own oh, thing? Gosh. Oh gosh, no! Uh, uh, I was a a, a long-haired um, car guy chasing girls and doing artwork, and um, that's wow. that's what I was. I tried I tried athletics. I used to be the fastest kid in school um, for a long time, um, so I had that going, but the, I just didn't have a draw towards it. Um, I really loved working on cars, um, like I said, doing artwork stuff and uh, growing my hair long and chasing women. So, <laughs> and that, I won't say that's how my whole life went, but um, those skills, and I'll let you pick which ones you want, um, tended to, to still uh, be prevalent <laughs> throughout my current life and everything else. So, it was, it was a good. Oh, it was a good match for off-road um, because I know we're, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but those art art skills and um, love of cars and, and that type of thing was really um, set the stage. That really set the stage for my um, off-road career as well. Okay. So then moving back to Colorado from Arkansas, that was uh, a step back in the right direction. Did that happen soon after the uh, they being expelled? Oh, I was around that same time, and I didn't. It wasn't the cause of me coming back to Colorado. My dad ended up getting the um, state archaeologist job here in Colorado, which is a dream job um, in his world. And so he came back. I came back. My mom and family was all here, so it just this made sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. That that'd be a pretty cush, not maybe not a cush job, but I mean, makes a, you know, where, where you're saying that that's a kind of a dream job. I would imagine working for the state as the archaeologist. That's that's pretty dang cool. Yeah, just the um, just the type of work. L- less ticks, less um, drug dealers, um, <laughs> less heat and humidity. Uh, I don't know, and he's. Even though he's uh, Southern-born, um, he sort of had a John Denver story and moved here to go to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. That's where he met my mom. Um, so he was definitely mostly at home in Colorado. So when he, he left, I did as well. Okay. 
So let's let's get into vehicles. Um, I would imagine there in Colorado, like everybody, you had bicycles. Um, what was your first mode of motorized transportation? Let me think about it. Uh, oh, a 50cc Suzuki moped. Nice. Yeah, I would not um, not popular with the girls, but um, <laughs> I did manage to blow the motor on it and be able to do wheelies and that kind of stuff and jump it. So, um, you mean you couldn't get you couldn't take girls out for a dinner date on a moped? Uh, oh, I could, I could. It just like, it's hard to compete with the the guys with the Chevelles. So yeah, um, so that was a short lived. That was short lived. Um, <laughs> soon as I was. 15 i started saving up and actually wanted either a chevelle or a baja bug and um, ended up with a baja bug it was, it was 1970 and that really started my off-road love really um because i really loved bugs i think that the that 6970 bug is probably the best years that they made it um made volkswagens because of the swing axles or the independent rear, um, I guess you would call it. And then the, mm-hmm. uh, the difference of, uh, not going to the struts, but still being the double beam front. Oh, sure. Most people are going to yeah. go, what is he talking about? If they never owned a bug. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't think that I looked at all that stuff at, at 15. Um, but I just, thought it looked cool and started to learn how to paint, um, build motors and, you know, try to make it so I could compete, uh, not, not off-road compete, but just compete for cool cars in high school and just have fun with it. And I ended up through high school having about five different Bajas, different, different levels. Awesome. And ended up being, again, not try to segue ahead of time, but ended up sort of, Segway in my Jeep world because um, I pushed the limits of those Baja, especially in Colorado with more of the rocky trails and that kind of stuff and found that I really needed another axle to drive up the front. So that's how I ended up with Jeeps. And when did you step into Jeeps? Uh, my stepdad had a 83 CJ7 that he had about 400,000 miles on it and he sold it to me for a dollar. And I sold my last Baja Bug, which was pretty sweet. It had a 2275 dual carb with the, the bus tranny, Corvette white. And that thing could do wheelies. You could jump. It was beautiful. Um, but I sold that thing and poured everything into the 83. And then that 83 ended up being the original Bruiser. Oh. CJ. Um, that was was famous for a long time. Right. And still have it actually, um, but but that was his Jeep. Like I said, I got it for a dollar and just started working. You doing the? You still have it? The, I still have the shell. Okay. Um, it was it was stolen in two thousand and destroyed pretty much, and which was sad because I was really done with it. So it was just going to be a a fixture to have as we were starting into our buggy transitions, but. I look at that Jeep today and every time I'm at Moab, I could still do all the trails and do all the stuff. Um, the technology hasn't passed it up 
So in its final configuration, it coilovers and stretched and bobbed and shrunk and tube framed and all that kind of stuff. So it would, it'd still hang. Awesome. So right after high school, you went into the military? Yeah, it was either art school or the military. And I wasn't, I was just finishing high school. And like I said, I wasn't the the most scholarly student. Like I said, I, I really like to focus on my, the other trifecta that I talked about, which was the <laughs> girls and the cars and artwork. And stuff. Um, so I was ready not to be in school, even a, an art school, which I loved. So growing up with my dad, uh, my dad was also in the military as well. He actually started off in the Navy, transferred to the Air Force Academy through college, and then later on joined the Army and did that in the Guard while he was an archaeologist at the same time. And so I kind of grew up with that. I never really thought of it as a teenager. I thought, ah, the stuff my dad does seems pretty tough. But uh, when it came down to it and I was 18, um, it looked like a good option for a while, and he encouraged me to do that as well. Um, I actually went in to be a, a forward observation pilot, and I can't remember the helicopter type, but that's what I signed up for, and I was going to go to F- Fort Rucker, Alabama. Pretty excited about that, and I thought I'd have a career in aircraft and helicopters, and between the time that I signed up and then they do a second physical, um, I had become colorblind. So Wow, okay. Um the army owned me, but they couldn't send me to be a pilot um, because of the because of that. Um, however, they did say that I was blue green or or something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but blue greens. So they said, but you can see camouflage better, and you've got these scores that would have put you into uh, the realm of being able to go be a pilot. So you can kind of pick what you want, and. But I had to make a decision in about 30 minutes. <clears throat> so, um, of course, they have the book. Here, make a life the... decision. Yes. It's yeah. going to affect you the rest of your life, and you have 30 minutes to do it. And they reinforced to me that they still owned me. I had already signed, so I had to do something. And um, I prefer – I've never done things because it's about money or um, – a particular status or motivations that way. So I just wanted to do something that was an adventure. So as I was looking through, I looked up and of course they have the recruitment posters and they always show the coolest jobs, which were the, which were the fellas on the rubber duckies, which are um, basically a, like a, a raft type of boat with, with the machine guns charging the beach and jumping out airplanes and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, what is that? And they're like, Oh, well that's, um, that's special forces. And they try to talk me out of it. I'm like, well, I'll just do that. That looks that looks interesting. And that started uh, me getting into something. Of course, I had didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, at 18, you think you know everything and figure out, you know, there's the poster, there's the job description, whatever. Um, but they wouldn't just let me go. I actually had to interview go um, sit with one of the A-teams and be interviewed and make sure that I was a good candidate, that I understood um, what that life was and that I would 100% come out injured and that it's not the regular military, all this kind of stuff. 
and uh, I still had hair down my back, so I was still kind of a hippie kid with Led Zeppelin boots and all that kind of stuff. And going to these interviews, it was super awkward. And I thought, oh, they'll never pick me. But um, they, I think they, for whatever reason, they thought I was um, trying to think of the term odd, peculiar, um, unique. I'm not really sure. Um, Special Forces soldiers are definitely different. So whatever they saw in me, they allowed me to to go. And so I went, um, started off, you got to start off at infantry school. So you got an infantry discipline. Mine was mortars. And you got to go through a series of schools before you can go to a selection process. Okay. And I don't know if I'm going beyond your question. No, no, not at all. You're, Um, you're, you're going great. So the, it was all very new to me. Of course, I'd lost my um, my long hair. Thrived. Um, I didn't love the infantry, um, as it seemed very regimented, and I don't know. I just didn't fit well, and I've never been good at following orders, <laughs> especially. Um, so I thought maybe I'd made a mistake. Actually, when I got to Fort Bragg, they said all that stuff you learned in the infantry, forget it. You're an individual. You know, we work in small teams. Um, they they support sort of their more rogue mentality. And I realized I was home at that point. Uh, went through the selection process. That's basically um, a shakeout to try to get people to quit. Um, our particular class was 360 guys. This was just before Desert Shield. And... By the end of it, we'd actually had two guys die in selection, um, and 60 made it, or the 360, I'm sorry, 80 made it. Sorry, this, is, this is old history, so I'm trying to remember, Rich. No 80 worries. made it, and then they picked 40 of us. So um, I have to admit, I did not think I was going to make it. Thank goodness I'd been in the infantry prior, so I toughened up my feet. And I was used to sleeping in the dirt <clears throat> with my dad and in the infantry, and... Um, but I was still kind of a skinny kid. There were some pretty big dudes, looked a lot tougher than me, but it, it was um, had more to do with uh, mental stuff than it did really physicality. So right. from there, um, you go to your MOS language schools and pretty much you spend your entire career going through schools and doing small deployments and things. So... To answer your question about that, Rich? Yep, sure did. So then uh, Special Forces, um, we won't get too deep into that because a lot of that stuff is, of course, probably classified or something. But you spent a lot of time in the sandbox then? Um, our area operations was Southeast Asia. Okay. Um, this was – so we were – the languages that our team spoke, of course, English, but Thai and Chinese and uh, – our sort of our um, who we were attached to was the Thai special forces. And at the time the Soviet union was falling, um, China was still seen as a threat. And even though Soviet union was falling, we still were groomed as the Soviet union being the, being the enemy. Okay. So we were, we were a front line if that, expansion ever went south uh, and with sf you you travel to different parts of the world so depending on what's happening 
um, just because you specialize in a certain area, um, you might get moved around to others. And the need, if there's a need, there wasn't that many of us at the time. The numbers were never published, but I could tell you that when we'd go to other bases and things like that, there'd usually be two or three of us on an entire base. So it was, it, it was unique. Yeah, it sounds like it. So then, you how long were you were you in the military? Five years. Um, as I was had the fate of of many of my my cohorts there, you, you kind of stay on the teams and you try to, although you accumulate injuries, you either stay on the teams as long as you can. And then you go on to military intelligence or uh, other aspects of the, of the, the, S, the SF battalions. Um, I ended up getting enough accumulated injuries. that took me off the team and my options weren't things I wanted to do, which was, teaching uh, language class for Thai, um, teaching weapons, doing that sort of stuff. So it put me in a more of a teaching cadre role if I'd stayed. And that's just not what I wanted to do. So I got out. I got out and did my rehab at Fitzsimmons Hospital here in Denver. They allowed me to do that since it was home and um, unexpectedly kind of got out. Um, my big plan was to retire on the special forces teams, become a smoke jumper and live with my dogs up in Montana and fight fires in the summer. That was my big life plan. And after the five years in the service, which I loved and hated with equal measure, um, all of a sudden was back in Denver and didn't know what to do. So artwork and grow your hair back out. Uh, oh, that that was perfect because um, <laughs> I did try to grow my hair back out, and guess what? It um, wasn't there anymore. So, um, <laughs> what had happened in my in my stint in the army is I became um, came bald just like my dad, um, but I didn't know that <laughs> until I got out and um, regrew it, and it just didn't quite grow back in the same places. So. Um, yeah, uh, but artwork maybe I actually started trying to be a real estate appraiser. Um, but the first day I had to wear a tie and some other stuff, and it was such a huge contrast from living in the shit with the forces that I just couldn't do it. Um, and I started working at a small, I had my Jeep, and I started working at a small off road shop in Denver on Saturdays and it paid nothing. I think I paid, got paid $5 an hour or something, uh, but I loved it. And the advice from my dad was, he's like, do something you really love and don't worry about the money. The money will come. And so I gave up on the real estate appraising, which I would never last in, but I gave up on that and started working this off-road shop. And that again, helped sort of set, set the stage me to carry on it's it's amazing how our parents or grandparents can be influential by saying something like that um you know i've i've mentioned it before in other podcasts that you know my grandfather had said you know that uh figure out what it is that you love to do in life and then how to make a living doing it and not Mm -hmm. not so much money related living but how you get to live your life 
And then it took oh, me yeah. until I was 42 to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it was good advice. Absolutely. For, for both of us, truly. And I have to admit, when I heard it, I just like, how am I going to, like this Jeep thing, $5 an hour, is this is it? Like, I can't do this. I'm living in poverty, but um, finding a way to do it. So, so do you remember the name of that Jeep shop? Oh, yeah. It was called Wilderness Off-Road. Okay. It was, it was not remarkable in the in the uh, great lineage of the industry. Um, a couple of people might know it here in Denver. And it's faded away. I don't know exactly when, but it faded away. And then, so you went from there to doing your own thing, or did you step into another shop? Well, um Wilderness was here, and then uh, Dixie Peck and Four Wheel Parts moved to Denver. Um, now, Dixie Peck was not, they were enemies at the time. Um, they were not married entities, which I think they are now. But so Dixie Peck had their own little shop and warehouse, and, and Four Wheel Parts did as well. At the time, Four Wheel Parts only had two stores in California, and they did a store here in Denver. And they I'm trying to remember how they recruited me. Um, I was working for Camp Jeep in the summer as a trail guide up on Holy Cross Mountain, and they were doing some sponsorship stuff or something there. And it talked to me about working at Four Wheel Parts, and I, of course, I saw them as Californians. No offense, y'all, but um, sort of out of staters, and also you know, sort of a big company that might squash small mom pop shops here. So I didn't view them in a good light, but they offered me $12 an hour and it was more than twice what I was making. And that was a big deal then. Um, and they also brought me in and said, Hey, we went a local, they basically hired me as a local Colorado personality, somebody that was in the, sort of the jeeping community knew the trails and my jeep at the time was like sprung over with dana 40 scout 44s and 35s and some other stuff so it was pretty extreme for the time and so i switched i went to foil parts uh greg adler was working for his dad and again we only had, they only had three stores so i saw adler quite a bit and did engine swaps and did sort of extreme stuff that you couldn't possibly get foil parts to do anymore, but because we were doing custom work. So I was sort of their custom guy. And from there and, and Rich, I'll do my best to intermingle all these happenings. Um, I was still working at camp Jeep in the summers as a trail guide ran into, um, JP magazine. It was brand new back then. I couldn't tell you who the people is I ran into but they did a story on my Jeep. And I think I was memorable because during the story, I actually rolled the Jeep. So, which was, <laughs> which was, a, which was not, I didn't intend to do that. Although later in my career, I would roll vehicles with no problem. And if it was a good story, then sweet. But at the time it was totally unintentional. Um, but it made for a good story for them. And I kind of, I made that connection. Uh, they, um, we're also friends with Sport Utility Magazine, if you remember Sport Utility. Yep. 
and Ken Yee and McMillan owned Sport Utility. Um, I couldn't tell you where Ken Yee was from, but McMillan lived in Buena Vista, Colorado. Um, and he owned Tomkin as well. And that's where the Tom Ken comes from. Tom McMillan and Ken Yee. Okay. So that's where the origin of that name comes from. And they had a small you know, shop. And they were building like battery, um, dual battery trays and body armor and kind of these dorky like metal channel bumpers and stuff. I mean, they weren't it wasn't revolutionary, but it, it, it fit a fit a niche. Um, but he used to have parties there at his house, Buena Vista. Went to one of those parties and I met Steve Vermore. Um, and Steve was out of Bayfield, Colorado and was starting um, Avalanche Engineering. Okay. And Steve had a CJ6 with full width axles and partial tubed and some other stuff. It was really sweet. And I had my full width axle Jeep and we were really an anomaly. Like everybody looked at us like we were crazy because they, everybody was running like CJ sevens, FJ forties. Um, that was sort of the staple 33s were the biggest thing. So 35 seemed nutty and Steve and I really bonded, um, because we just appreciated each other. And so we, um, started the conversation about starting avalanche engineering together. And I don't, do you remember avalanche? Oh Rich? yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, not everybody will, but I think that, I think it's significant. We did some pretty, um, big things at the time, but at the same time, um, through that sport utility contact with J- and JP and all that sort of stuff, JP asked me if I would start writing articles for JP magazine. So I started writing tech articles for for them still at four wheel parts cover- and having conversations with her more about avalanche. Um, at some point the magazine gig was, was really good. And, um, I felt like the thing was Steve and I was going to be legit. So I quit foil parts and jumped off the cliff and Steve and I did avalanche. I had a small shop in Denver, um, continued with JP for a couple of years and then quit because the avalanche was just getting too busy. Um, which was unfortunate because the month I quit, they hired payway the next month. And of course, Payway was a legend and um, I was writing JP Magazine at the time was more about like, why does my soft top leak and what's the best one inch <laughs> body lift and um, why does my Jeep squeak and this kind of stuff. And so those were the type of articles I was writing and Payway took it over and of course, you know, transformed that into a, into a real magazine. And so I, I did regret not writing together with payway because he was he was a big deal at the time right it still is still is for sure Absolutely. but as a as an underling it's in the industry you know i was just trying to um, chip my way in to have the chance to be with payway would have been awesome but we would reconnect later for sure um from there am i moving along okay Big Rich? yeah absolutely okay you just let me know if i'm if i'm getting off track okay um, so Steve and I did avalanche. He was, had some like quarter elliptic kits and 
couple um like i can't remember everything that that we had to start off with um i basically started machining and designing stuff that didn't exist but was needed for our crowd which was super niche which was the full width axle um hardcore crowd um which i have to admit i didn't really know if it would go anywhere because at the time the off-road industry was all about um double tube smitty built um, <laughs> bumpers and nerf bars and big arced stiff leaf springed vehicles that were didn't have any flex um a bunch of diamond plate armor stuff and um shiny wheels you know it was it made our off-road harder and it was it was more of a car show than it was like a like a functional type of thing right the the stuff steve and i were doing was all about function and didn't have anything to do with um flashy light bars and stuff so it wasn't popular but uh, we started building it and like i said machining high steer arms for 44s and 60s making full width kits for cj's quarter elliptic kits started working with sway away to figure out do coilovers make sense for off-road um with some of our four link suspensions it seemed like that was the right thing to go because the standard valved hydraulic shocks weren't doing it so we just had all these sort of challenges the other thing is we were just destroying bodied vehicles uh we were doing trails that were not meant we were doing parts of trails that people weren't thinking that was part of the trail we were doing sort of this crazy stuff but we were just wrecking bodies so steve and i along with um oh remind me rich what's what's the guy that made scorpion sunny 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 yep there we go sunny sunny started doing the scorpions um steve was doing um snipers the sniper chassis yeah. and that one off assassin chassis so we were working on those and of course they were super revolutionary um and just an awesome design steve was a great engineer and still is um so we started really focusing on that um bead locks bead locks weren't a thing so i was trying to figure out how to we not bust beads and we were all running big swampers with heavy walls those tsls if you guys remember the boggers and they were indestructible, but they just fell off wheels. And of course, 15 inch wheels were the thing. So you had these huge sidewalls, put all these leverage on them, and they're always falling off. So I tapped into the racing world, started talking to the circle track guys, and started trying to, like, how are you guys keeping your tires on? So they showed me these beadlock things. Of course, they were all put on with these chintzy rings with like sheet metal screws. <laughs> and we tried that once, and of course, it just fell apart. Um, so I realized what we needed just didn't exist, which well, that's what we were in the business of, which was building things that just hadn't been thought of or hadn't been applied off-road. So we started building it with 516th bolts, but we were running 40s, 42s. That stuff was falling apart. Started running 3.8s um, on steel wheels with 15s and machining our own rings, that sort of stuff. And we finally found something that really worked. And that's where the beadlock, so I, I feel like the beadlock revolution kind of started happening. And then, of course, other um, companies like Larry at Trail Ready and some others started 
kind of seeing this and doing um, a great job with their own style. Um, am I going too fast or too slow, Big Red? No, nope, you're doing great. Okay. I, I'll I'll direct the conversation as we need to, but you're cruising right along. It's awesome. Okay. Well, if I ramble, you let me know. No worries. Um, and so from there, we really had some products that just didn't exist. So we were the source. Um, and for Steve and I, it wasn't a, like we were like, wow, we're really going to cash in. We really viewed it as a love of the sport. And it was all about that. It was the love of the game. We're building cool products. Uh, we weren't, we were just poor off-roader designers. And we never really thought that it would be anything. And we started getting busy <laughs> and um, right. started getting really busy. And it well, was... A lot of guys came through Avalanche. A yeah. lot of guys in the industry. Yeah, there's some good ones. Um, I saw Eric. I'm trying to remember. Eric's with Motive Gear now, I think. Yep. Um, I've got several names I don't remember. But, but Drew, yeah. Drew had, Barber? Oh, of course. Yeah, Drew. Yeah, Drew was um, really key in Steve's operation. So... But Steve and I were a huge juggernaut. Uh, I was really, to this day, I'm sad that we didn't um, stay together longer, but we just did things differently. Um, he really wanted to focus on the competition side, <coughs> excuse me, which was great. But as, as I was seeing the company grow, I just didn't, I felt like the comp, you know, competition products, and you know this, there's a ceiling because if you're a competitor, you want everything for free, usually. <laughs> <laughs> and Or a promoter. Um, or a promoter or something. So um, catering to the, to the competition crowd it is small as well. And, but, and I've been on both ends of it. I've been the competitor and I've been the sponsor and been everything. And um, I get it. Yeah, you're used to being... Um, showered with products so but it wasn't a good business plan i didn't think right so steve really wanted to focus avalanche that way and i really felt like the recreational crowd was um what was missing so i really wanted to make a hybrid and that's where avalanche uh and i split off and steve continued with it for a number of years with the with the snipers and the, the other products he was doing but i forged poison spider at the time and that was that break to really go towards the rec crowd do you and, think that 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 uh the competition helped breed the the technology mm -hmm. oh sure uh rich i do agree with you i have to say that i think that the type of off-roading that we were doing in those times was pre-competition. So I, f I felt like they mirrored the competitions based off the level of extreme wheeling we were doing. Right. And so the initial vehicles were like, oh yeah, you guys are throwing stuff at us that we do recreationally. Um, and so we had already started building products to survive that. Now, granted, what we were doing then in competition is not um, some of the twisted stuff that you and have built since. Um, so I think at some point that is totally correct where people were trying to um, take that 
comp technology and ideas and apply them to recreational vehicles. And it and it fits, you know, it does work. If, if it survives in competition, it should survive in recreational. Right. Okay. Um, so I agree, but I do think the extreme wheeling came first. Oh, exactly. Then, yeah. Because we had like the 99 and the 2000 Warren competition competition rock calling competition which we all just brought our trail rigs too it wasn't uh we nobody built a vehicle for the competition we just brought what we we brung what we normally run and those competitions we some of the fellows even didn't trailer them you know we just drove them to the competition so right no i i remember those early days um that you know i mean guys would show up with you know, basically almost brand new TJs on 35s or, you know, Steve in a, in a sniper, Sonny in, in, uh, the Scorpion. And then you had, uh, you know, Campbell and Pinky and, you know, the, mm-hmm. you just looked at the, the wide variety of vehicles that were competing and it was, it was pretty insane all in one class. Yeah, and um, I'll throw another. I'll throw two others in there too, which was the the Currys had the Fire Ant. Yeah. With um, Wagner. Yes, Jeff. Jeff Wagner. Am I remembering that right? Um, and then you also had Chris Durham come along. He was a little bit after the beginning. Um, oh gosh, and was the it hurts me that I can't remember his name. The big brown CJ seven out of Oklahoma. Big block motor. Sam. Sam. Sam Patton. Yep. Yep. So Sam Patton. Um, yeah. Some really love dudes there. Um, so that's who showed up. Uh, again, I, I, met, I mentioned Durham. We were not friends at the time because we were kind of dominating. It was sort of like, like the refinement of the Curries versus sort of the greasy engineering that, that um, Ramor and I were doing with the snipers and the one ton rear steer and all that kind of stuff. So that, you know, I always felt like we were going to win or the fire ant was going to win. And then here comes, um, comes this guy from South Carolina with a rat tail. That's about three feet long, (laughs) short shorts, boots and white socks. And with a Southern accent with a J 10 truck and the original rock bouncer. Yeah. I didn't give that thing a, second thought i was like okay no worries with this one um but where we were finessing and maneuvering and jiving through the cones and all that kind of stuff um here comes durham and he's full throttle um i swear he had his eyes closed half the time (laughs) and just bouncing up and kick kicking us you know beating us so um, i remember meeting durham and um, i was stunned that he beat us with his style but um, clearly, his talent has carried him through, and he had a talent then. It was just unknown. Yep, exactly. He he but, felt uh, he could feel a car when the car wasn't even on. You know, there was his his style definitely was not. You know the the super technical. You know, tire placement just here and there, and you know, I mean, his line was, you know, just stay between those cones and. And uh, right, and right. nail it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like yeah, it's like we were all stunned. I don't think I was alone, but um, you know, it was, it was revolutionary for that at the time. And we were, like I said, we were still working on 
parts that survive. Um, we were almost too heavy with the sniper and too big, but you know, it, it was, it was cool times. I remember in Phoenix or Steve was competing in, it was uh, an ARCA event and it was on, it was the, the obstacles on lower woodpecker, but the courses went uh-huh. from lower to upper and he blew up. I think he had the Rockwells under it at that time. Yep. And he blew up one of those two and a half ton axles. It bang. Yeah. Man. I mean, everybody jumped. It was like a sonic boom, you know, compared to everything else breaking. Yeah, I was, um, I think I was about five feet from that axle when it popped. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and we were amazed if I've, and you correct me. I'm trying to remember. I think he went under an undercut. With yes, forty-four inch swampers, and I remember making eye contact with them, and we're like, "Well, it's never broke before, so it should survive." <laughs> and he went under the undercut and gave it, you know, gassed it. I think he had a three fifty in that thing, but with those those gears, anyway, we were all surprised, but it it did blow, and I don't think we had a spare. I I can also remember there's, you know, the that lower woodpecker is a, a wash and there's a, sl- a slight bank. Well, probably 15, 20 foot tall. And the spectators were sitting along that bank. And there was some guy there that goes, man, I drive this trail all the time. I can't believe these guys can't make this. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, you don't drive it the same way that those, that they're driving it. You may go up this wash but you're driving around those rocks. You're not going over the top of them. Yeah. And he started to argue with me. And I said, I'll give you a hundred bucks right now. If you go get your Jeep and you can drive that same line that Steve had just broke on. Yeah. And I said, I'll give you the hundred bucks in my pocket right now. If you can do that. And he goes, okay, I'll do that. And he wanders off and we never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Those were, yep. those were some wild days. Yeah. So point spider, did pretty good. Uh, we were took a lot of those innovative products, designs, and had the Bruiser chassis as well. We had already started the Bruiser in the Avalanche days, and that chassis was supposed to be the, I won't say the everyman's chassis, but one thing that was, was I thought was missing was that, yeah, we could build two buggies, but they were so expensive. Um, and we were building those chromoly dragster housing axles. I don't know if you remember those. Right. We'd put portals on them, and they were they were so beautiful. They were polished chromoly and nine inch centers, and we were putting them on these chromoly chassis. And we had these exotic vehicles that nobody could afford. And although it made a name for us. Um, I was still feeling for the guys that had the CJ5 at home with the Dana 30 and the Dana 20 or the AMC 20 in the back and all that other stuff. And those guys were, you know, I felt like we still needed to cater to them because that was our roots. And so that's where the Bruiser chassis came. And of course, it was inspired by my original Bruiser Jeep. And I was trying to make an affordable platform for um, regular people. And that's where that came from. So those that wanted to go out and wheel harder stuff than a full body vehicle could do. 
Yeah, because there's still the same thing. The the, the um, people that were coming out and wheeling those extreme trails at the time were still destroying their Jeeps. Or I won't say just Jeeps, but Broncos and Toyotas and everything else. And so buggy, that's why a buggy made the most sense because you could roll it, you could smash it, you could put it on the side, you could do whatever. Um, you weren't having frames tear out. Um, you weren't having motor mounts um, collapse and all this kind of stuff. Engines shifting and taking out radiators. And you could make sort of this indestructible-ish um, platform. And that's where the buggies really came from. But that's where the bruiser came from is I was trying to make it accessible. And it was. It was, it was successful. Right. And that's uh, that's when, when you became recognizable to me is with the bruiser chassis and, and poison spider and doing the, uh, I would almost say, you know, most of the stuff that I remember was, was like show car quality though. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the dashes and the, the paint jobs and everything were, were, you know, it was that car show type stuff, Mm -hmm. custom cars. Well, that's what was missing in the rock crawling world is we were so rudimentary, so, so function, but in, and I, and, and the snipers had their great lines and some of the other buggies and, um, but Sonny's, you know, sort of sniper, or, um, almost like a Hummer looking yeah, that buggy scorpion. kind of a thing. Um, and this were kind of my artistic side came in and like, wow, it's magic if you could make it have style and function. And that became the pulse of poison spider was function and style. And I felt like at the time, you know, chip foos and a lot of those um, sort of hot rod things were going on. I looked at some of the stuff they were doing and like, why aren't we doing this? And so integrated those into the buggies. And then I just thought you had it all. You had a hot rod, but you could still, um, you weren't just regulated to streets you could um, go off-road and sort of have your rock rod. That's why I call them rock rods. And and it was being in Colorado helped because licensing was a lot easier there than a lot of states. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, originally, I would look for like a, a Willys or an old flatty or something like that that was 400 bucks. And I would show up at a farm and buy a, a clapped out Willie's um, for $400 and I'd give them $400 and I would um, take the plate off of it. And I'm like, this is all I needed title in the plate, <laughs> sir. You can keep, you can keep your Jeep. It's just not going to have this plate anymore. And it was a uh, very symbiotic and I had several guys kind of actually looked for them. So I had a collection of uh, old Willie's titles and plates and then we would attach those to the buggies. Um, later on, the state, I talked to the state, and they actually let me register them as a kit vehicle. They just had to had to um, adhere to current missions. And when we first started, that seemed like more of a challenge. But once we started using LSs and um, current engines that were crate motors and stuff like that, it was it was pretty easy because they always passed the missions. Right, they were you know com- computer controlled and all that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now I don't know, think that would have flown in California, but we weren't there, so right. You could you could buy them here, and then if they went to Colorado, uh, California or something, they would have to be trailered or 
but we could drive them there. We could drive them, you know, cross country because they were they were a plated vehicle. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, and but, you guys did the the tail lights and headlights and all that. That's mm-hmm, yeah. We made it all have the well street legalish. Um, I, I would famously be harassed in Utah, um, <laughs> and because even though they were street legal in Colorado, of course we went to Moab. We were, um, and I think me in particular was a real target. And um, I remember one year Ned Bacon. I'm sure you know Ned. Oh yeah. Um, he had um, spider. Is that right? Uh, the, the, the bumblebee or bumblebee. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but he and I always had a little side competition to see who could get the most tickets at Jeep Star. (laughs) Um, and I was good for one a day and he was good for about one a day. (laughs) So, um, that's hilarious. (laughs) Um, we, I just had, I would come home with my um, roll of tickets and then just write a check to them and move on. But they used to pull me over in Moab and I knew the police by name because they pulled me over so, so much. And they would sometimes, if you remember the, the heydays back, like in the two thousand, like the 2000, I don't know, three through seven, probably is, I'd say the, the pinnacle of Jeep Safari as far as attendance. Right. Um, they used to pull me over right in the center of town, put, three rigs on me with spotlights and they'd make me sit there for 20 minutes. And they would tell me, they're like, we're going to give you a ticket, but you have to stay for 20 minutes because they wanted to make a spectacle out of it so that everybody knew if I got pulled over that they would get pulled over. So, <laughs> um, and I have to say it really did not make me happy because I had better stuff to do than be a spectacle for the local police there. And I also felt like I pumped a lot of their, their, um, their economy and that may or may not be true, but it definitely was at least adding to um, the renting hotels and paying tickets. <laughs> but that's, but um, that's pretty good. Yeah. I, I diverted somehow. Oh yeah. Bruiser chassis. I think we were talking about those. So the, they ended up being a great, a great buggy and a great platform. And I think they, they still would be today if they were around. And I agree. I think that, uh, I, I, I found it interesting back then watching the the evolution, I guess, is the best way to put it, of vehicles. You know, from from the very beginning, you know, where um, everybody just run what you brung, um, what you could drive. You know, some of them were absolutely daily drivers that people mm-hmm. showed up to, to compete in or go trail wheeling in. And then that metamorphosis you know kind of like the uh the the worm or the the stages of becoming a moth or a butterfly you know and and yeah. how that transition went um it was it was kind of cool back then to watch that and i feel sorry for the guys that are in in the sport now or in the industry that never got to witness that uh that evolution yeah, and I will let me let me swing back sure. and let me let me tie into what you just said and um and, and again I'm gonna circle back. I absolutely back when I was doing the JP magazine thing and I'd retired I don't retired because I wasn't there twenty years, but just a couple of years. 
um, I'd actually started writing for Four by Four Power, which was Tom Moore was the editor. Do you remember that magazine? Yes, absolutely. It was it was like the everyday man's four wheel and off road. Um, I still have my banners that hang in my garage from Four by Four Power that nobody remembers. But um, at that same time was about when the TJs came out in ninety seven. I think it was 97. Yeah. So in 1996, I was working at Camp Jeep as a guide up on Holy Cross Mountain. And Camp Jeep closed down. And they asked if I would stay a couple days after because they wanted to have me do some private guiding for Chrysler on Holy Cross. And I was like, sure. Yeah, no problem. I didn't know what it was all about. Well, they brought a like a YJ TJ hybrid out on the trail and it had coils all the way around and like 31s, but it had the TJ suspension that was going to be what they were working on, kind of the skunk work stuff. So my, my year might be wrong. It might've been 95, but it was the first time that I had seen coil suspension that we hadn't just built um, on a Jeep. Um, because before that it was all leaf springs and coils were exotic. Yes. You know, like you would steal them off of box Broncos and put them front and rear, steal their um, long arms and that kind of stuff. And we kind of looked at that thing and I was like, okay, I was like, we can try and get it a pulley cross. And we did, and it did well. I mean, we beat it up, um, but we got it a pulley cross and they said, well, this is going to be a production vehicle. And of course it ended up being the Rubicon a couple years later. And I recognized it. I was like, hold on, you're going to, this is going to be available like off the lot. And they're like, yes. And I knew things were changing because you allow people that had no trail experience, no etiquette, didn't know how to use a winch and that kind of stuff. And you give them a locked vehicle off the lot with coil springs. That's this capable. Um, course i had no idea what it was really going to do to the industry but i knew it was going to be something and sure enough if you remember rich a couple years later they came up with those rubicons and i think the first time i really remember seeing them um, probably was that camp jeep that year but it was also at jeep safari and they were doing really well yeah and it was kind of um stand in the face of us that we were all fabricators and builders. And, um, you know, when we got to the top of the mountain, especially the extreme trails, we were it. There was like four or five of us and all the riffraff that had regular Jeeps and things couldn't make it that far. And we could have the lake to ourselves. Um, and all that changed with the Rubicon because now everyday man could purchase something for, I'm going to make up this number, but like 25 grand or something. And do a lot of the trails that we were doing and they didn't need necessarily a fabricator like us to make it. So that's when I really started seeing the industry shift. I agree. Um, It it also took out a lot of the driving. (laughs) So I'll (laughs) I'll fast forward to, I didn't guide at Jeep Safari this year, but I was still there Um, last year. Um, this year, I have to. I got to interrupt you. This year was probably the worst driving that I've seen on the trails in twenty years. It's painful. It is painful. Um, I'm still doing guiding, but mostly industry people. But when you get out on the 
trails and they've got the brand new jeeps and they're already rubicons and they show up with 37s and i'm watching them go go through the trails that we used to drive cj5s through with open diffs and 31s and we did it better um it's hard to watch uh, because they're just there's no learning curve they didn't start with a willies or a or a driving a covered wagon FG, FJ40 with springs and 31s and open diffs to learn how to drive the machine and have that feel. True. Um, they're just they're just getting into a superhero Jeep right away that the capabilities are um, way beyond the driver. Exactly, and that's one of the I guess that's one of my pet peeves nowadays, and it's part of that that no etiquette on the trail. And, you know, the damage, resource damage that happens to the, to our wheeling areas because they, they, and I'm not going to say everybody that drives like a JK or a JL or a Gladiator or anything else that's off the the lot, but, you know, there's a, a, a majority of them that can't pick a line if, you know, to save their life. And, you know, I mean, being learning to wheel when there was, when you didn't have lockers, you were leaf sprung and you had to pick a line to get up the hill instead of just point and shoot, um, mm-hmm. really makes for a different, a different style and a different, and I see it today so much. I mean, I, I we were, we were coming up, Cane Creek, and we were at the top there, or what what is called the top, um, mm-hmm. but that Hamburger Hill area. Yep. And there was a group in front of us that their cars they had them sideways, um, you know, almost going off the cliff, and guys, you know, people spotting that had no clue what they were doing spotting people, and the people that were with us were brand new. I mean, they were was part of Charlene's ladies off-road network. And they were, I mean, these girls, they had, mm-hmm. some of them had done nothing but top of the world the day before. And yeah. I'm mean, totally brand new to the rocks and dirt. And it freaked some of them out watching the group in front of us try to get up that hill. Yeah. Cause they assumed that was them. Yeah. They <laughs> thought, okay, this, you know, we're almost going to drive off the hill and we're going to do this. And it's like, no, 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 no. Just pay attention. And, you know, between Ben Bauer, Charlene Bauer, and myself, you know, taking different parts of that that climb, you know, we got everybody up there safely. Um, you know, one car did get a little damage, um, but you know, there was no there was no breakage or anything like that, and nobody got got crazy. Yeah, and it just yeah. it was really sad to see that you know that there's. There was such a lack of understanding of what it takes a ve- what it takes to get a vehicle up a hill without you know just pounding the hell out of it. Well, Big Rich, that's the Jeep TJ Rubicon's fault. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think. But I think it that's, also it also pushed pushed the industry from being you know so so niche for sure. You know, and then the JK came along and and saved the whole off road industry, I believe, because you know it brought people into the sport or into the genre, you might say, when 
the economy was so poor that all the that so many businesses were lost. Yeah, well, and I can relate to that myself. Um, that was that was a tough time, yes. but the um, yeah, JK was huge. TJ uh, was big as well, and it, it did. It was a it was kind of a deal with the devil with the Rubicon because it did allow the unskilled um, dirt pilot to to join the ranks, but they also had a little bit more money than. Uh, early Toyota and CJ crowd and so they bought the Rubicon and they wanted stuff and um, it definitely was a uh, made the industry more robust and I definitely uh, benefited from it because we started building TJ products and you know that the buggy stuff and the innovation was all there but what kept the lights on was selling and designing TJ products at the time Right. Yep. And and but keeping keeping to our um, code of building top quality style products, and you know that that's what really launched us into a, you know the, I'd say the bigger arena to where we started getting uh, noticed at a, a more globally. So the name Poison Spider. Did you take that from the trail? Or where did the where did the name come from? I'm going to give you the long answer here, which okay. was um, it's really when we started with Avalanche. So Steve came up with Avalanche. He was an engineer. Um, that was his name. So Steve had Avalanche. Um, the name was an oddity in the off-road community because everybody was like. Sam's off-road or somebody off-road or extreme off-road or everything had an off-road. Most had some off-road moniker on the end of it. And so when we went with Avalanche Engineering, it wasn't, you know, we had some marketing to do because what the phone calls I was getting was people that actually were wanting us to um, set explosives on the side of the mountains to start avalanches. (laughs) Um, cause that is an avalanche engineering, I guess. So, but through, um, I won't raise our flag necessarily, but through our talent and some notoriety, it became a name, um, that stood alone without having to have off-road on it. So when we, uh, when I started Point Spider Customs, I really wanted to embody our code, which was, um, sort of that rock rod mentality and quality. And I recognize that that was sort of like a customs, almost like a motorcycle customs or like some of the hot rod stuff happened in Southern California. But I also wanted to tie it into our lineage. And Moab was my second home for a long time. And it actually started there backpacking with my dad in the 80s. And so I loved that area. And we there were there a lot. Even I actually wheeled more in Moab truly than I did in Colorado. So I wanted to tie in to an area we loved and tell, send the right message. And I didn't want it to say off-road because that was just going to get lost with all the extreme off-roads and everything else. So um, we actually started trying to figure out logos and a buddy of mine built that spider logo. And he worked for Coors and he did all their marketing. 
So Coors is in Golden, Colorado, which is just right, just right by where we live. And he had built this cool spider that was for his Jeep club that was going to be like the creepy crawlers or something. And I said, let me buy that from you. And I bought that logo for $700. Good investment. And yeah. And then um, the symbol in it and the butt of the spider or the, it's not really the butt, I guess the body of the spider was from a trip that I had taken to Geneva in Sweden with a former girlfriend and she had bought this necklace for me and it was that symbol. I don't know what it meant. Some kind of um, Viking thing or something, but, it, but I really liked it because we needed something other than just having a black body. So put that symbol in it, creepy collar logo, got rid of the creepy collar tied in with, with Moab, with the poison spider dropped in the customs and that's where it came from. Okay. And, um, Obviously, it seemed to work okay, um, and the name built all right. And although some other companies came out with this and that customs, it never, we were never shadowed by anybody. Right, for real. That's that's absolutely true. So then, so, uh, mm -hmm. from from the poison spider, um, eventually you uh, you got out of out of that. And did you shelve the name first or did you, or were you still doing work on it when you sold the company? Oh gosh, there's so much backstory here, Rich. Uh, well, let me, let me get to what happened okay. at Queen Spider. Okay. No I think, worries. I think that, I think we'll be missing that large chasm of the story. True. Uh, so I was, I'm, a great, well, I won't say I'm a great designer and all this stuff, but I did pretty good. I do pretty good with that stuff. And that was, as an artist and a wheeler, that was my strength. Running businesses is not. Um, as so is most everybody in our industry. So I made a lot of catastrophic mistakes. Uh, however, because of we'd stayed true to that core, um, you know, our, our people stayed true to us as well, even with some of the mistakes I made. Um, there was a, there was a lot of mimickers out there and still to this day, um, I can watch vehicles drive by with my designs on it. And so I saw all these companies and some of them were just there just to reproduce my designs. And that became frustrating. Um, when we used to go to SEMA and show there, um, I noticed some of the overseas companies were doing the same thing. So what I would do is I'd actually purposely build flaws into the products for SEMA and then the, a lot of the copycat products came out with those flaws <laughs> and that way at least I'd, I'd screw them on their jigs for about six months. <clears throat> but um, that weighed on me because when I first entered the industry, it was so small and the curries were like the, you know, the gods, gods at that time. And they were the ones on the front of sport utility, like every other issue. And they were sort of the rule, but it was still a small, a small world. And so when I started building products, all of us were, had our phone numbers. So, excuse me. So when I, I'll give you an example. Um, the original rocker knocker that I built, which was the 
guards for CJs and TJs and MyJs, all that stuff. Uh, I called it the Rocker Knocker off of Pritchett, from Pritchett Canyon, but originally I named it Helderado, the Helderado Sliders. And Frank uh, Frank Curry called me and he's like, hey, you know, we've got a, I think they had a, a Jeep of theirs, they were calling the Helderado or something. And he was like, you know, we're calling our Jeep that. It seemed, I'm afraid it'll be confusing. And I was like, cool, no problem. I'll change it to something else. And those are the simple conversations we did out of respect for each other. Um, back, back in Mountain Off-Road was around there, and I think there's more still around when uh, Chris Overacker had it. Uh, we would exchange products, but whatever Chris was working on, like those bomb-proof motor mounts for engine swaps and that kind of stuff, I knew how to build them. I've been building them a long time, but because Chris had them, I wasn't going to build them, so right. I wouldn't compete with him. And that was just how the industry was. We talked to each other and we're like, oh, you're working on that? I'll work on this. And it was um, very honorable. And I saw the trend of the off-road industry at that time happening. It was just switching. There was money to be made. So when big money came in, that those players were being eaten up. And the people that were taking over these companies and were re really copying all the innovators products didn't live with the same code business or personally. Um, and it just made me very disheartened because I, I really saw off road as a very purist community and I was getting discouraged with that. Um, plus poison spider was exploding and I was trying to, match the the size of the company as far as the business part and i wasn't able to do it well because i just wasn't equipped i just didn't have the tools to run the company at that size uh, i did feel like it had to grow because we were being sort of the um we had the enemies at the gates because people were reproducing our products they were better business people they had more money they had um, all these things. So I thought the answer was to grow. So I felt like there was strength and size. So the company was getting so big that I didn't know the people that worked for me anymore. It used to be, I'd walk in and turn on the lights in the shop and I knew all my, all my guys. And we went over what we were doing with the buggies and design. And sometimes I'd work on the plasma table for a while. Sometimes I'd sit in the back and weld for a couple hours. I'd go bend tube with the fellas and that was kind of what Poison Spider was. <clears throat> I had the same work shirt that everybody that worked for me had. Um, still had the same scars from welding splatter and all that kind of stuff. And that was when it was awesome. Um, but when we started growing to sort of meet this demand or my perceived um, reaction to what I thought had to happen to keep Poison Spider around, it just grew too big. And I just didn't love it anymore. Um, I couldn't ever be away from it. And the business stuff became more overwhelming. And uh, the core of why I'd started it, <clears throat> which was for the love of the game, was farther and farther in the distance. And then, of course, the economy crashed. And I was actually getting calls from other companies that were collapsing and saying, hey, can you take over manufacturing so we can keep our name, but you build it. 
you build the products. Um, the other thing that happened at that time was Polaris was coming out with a razor and they had approached me and said, Hey, we're going to send you these two prototype, like, um, like four wheel drive. They're not ATVs, but you sit, sit in them. There's like two chair, there's two seats. And I went out to Polaris and looked at these things and they were with it, what razors are now. And they were like, we'd like you to design the suspension and some other products for it. And then in all our hub dealerships, there'll be a poison spider model along with, I think Walker was Walker Evans was going to do one as well and somebody else, but we would have our signature products on them as well. And then we we're going to contract with Polaris to build those products and only sell them to Polaris. So anyway, Rich, all this stuff was happening at once. I was looking at what it would take to take on all this business. And I was going to have to borrow millions, hire lots of people, have AM, PM shifts, seven days a week. And um, at this very same time, my wife and I were having kids and I had a brand new baby and um, I was very stressed all the time. And I was like, nope, this is not why I did this. But I'd gone too far, Rich. I'd gone too far. I'd bought the big building. I had done all the stuff. I've had a water, I had the water jets and all the huge table, all the manufacturing. So I had that overhead. And it went from being a love to just being a, a shack. It was, I was shackled to it. So the idea was to sell Poison Spider and come back home. And I don't mean literal home, but I mean come back to why I was in the industry, which is small custom work with quality products and have a have an employee base where I still know knew their families and knew their names and we could, I could still go out and shop and weld and that was okay so the economy crashed uh, went to sell it and one of the big suitors was four real parts and even though I'd had a history with with foil parts and Adler specifically, uh, I wouldn't say we were friends, but we were good acquaintances and we knew each other because I knew him from my early twenties and we had had a bit of a falling out because when we started selling products, foil parts, they, um, made copy products through Smitty Belt. Yep. And I, I won't get into all that, but, um, Adler and I had, had quite the scene at SEMA when I went by the Smitty Belt booth. And saw that they were exactly my products. But so how, where this comes into play is when Four Wheel Parts talked about buying Queen Spider, I was I was not a no, I was a hell no. I was like, it didn't matter how much money they were offering me, that's not what Poison Spider was. Poison Spider was a enthusiast, enthusiast-driven, purist company. And there was no way I was gonna have a big company own it. And so I turned down their offer, which was good. I would have just retired or it would have launched me into the small shop at the time. But I was really looking for somebody that was, I felt was an enthusiast, had the right heart for it, would carry it on, at least as I saw it. I knew there wasn't another me specifically, but somebody that was fit, some, checked some of those boxes. And that's when we got contacted by the McCrays. I'd known them from one ultimate venture they did with us, I think in 2000. And I know Larry had done some competitions. So not like a force, he wasn't like a force in the industry, but 
he seemed to fit that criteria. And that's why I went with them instead of Foil Parts. Makes sense. That, I get it. And so that way, the idea was is I was going to drop out, do American Rock Rods. We'd still have our Spiderlock wheels, which was still a good business. And I could machine the wheels. We had them built through um, Wheel Pros, which uh, my kid's mom's family owned most of Wheel Pros, which has like American Racing, KMC, all that kind of stuff. So they were doing our molds for us, but we were getting them shipped in bulk, and I could machine lug patterns and um, be with my toddler while I was machining wheels, and it was a pretty good life, and that was our plan. Um, and I don't want to get into the muck, but what ended up happening with foil parts is um, didn't go the way I planned, and um, me and the McCrays are not friends anymore, and as far as I'll go with that. And then ultimately, I think they sold it to foil parts or Trans-American within a couple of years, which was exactly what I didn't want to happen to it. And, you know, now it is what it is. But that's what happened to foil parts, and there's lots of um, Torah details there. But I, I choose to not. I'm cho- choosing not to live in that anymore. So I don't. I don't think about it. I get it. Okay. Um. From there, uh, we did. We kept the wheels, um, Spirelock wheels, which still around. Um, me and the kids' mom ended up getting a divorce. A lot of the stress from that and from the dealings with uh, I'll, I'm going to coin it as, as giving up poison spider right. sort of selling, but it's not really, um, I don't know how to say it well, but we also had, um, our son was born prematurely. Um, AJ had a preeclampsic thing or we'll get into deep medical stuff here, but, Basically, the placenta separates, and the baby and mom can bleed to death. And so we had our son a couple months early, premature, and we had the stress of that and not having the money from Poison Spider, and it was just a whole lot. And we were looking at court dates and lawyer lawyers and all that kind of stuff, and it was so much stress on our, our marriage that we ended up getting divorced. So... AJ ended up keeping Spiderlock wheels and she still has it to this day and is doing a good job with it. And from then I was doing American rock rods, which was really supposed to be what I wanted it to be, which was a small shop building buggies. Again, we restarted the, the bruiser chassis. I designed a couple more, made even a more rudimentary chassis called the Mantis, which was even more affordable. I was trying to make a $1,500 chassis. Wow. And, it was it was a cool chassis. It was a really cool chassis. Um, but as I told you before, my uh, my business end isn't always the best. And I ended up partnering with somebody that um, didn't have the same goals I did. So we ended up dismantling American Rock Rods. And at that point, I was felt like the off road industry was so toxic to me. I don't mean like y'all were all toxic. I spent my my experience in it was so toxic i just had to step away um at this very same time and where was the epiphany for the decision is my dad passed away in a canyon just south of moab 
and I was in Moab when I got the call and had to go recover uh, my dad's stuff out of the canyon. And I spent a week down there refollowing his maps, trying to figure out what happened, seeing where search and rescue had come picking up the helicopter and going through reports. And we had a lot of unknowns there. And being my dad's son, I knew how he wrote his notes, how he followed his maps, how he traveled. He would canyoneer solo, and that's what he was doing on a seven-day. And I spent my seven days down there um, retracing his steps. And in that time, I just realized that I had to just leave the off-road industry um, because I just there was just too much. I couldn't keep fighting that battle, and um, everything was, like I said, too toxic. So the epiphany was, as I was talking to the search and rescue people and the EMS providers and all that kind of stuff, um, I was like, I'm going to do that. I love that. It's a connection with my dad. It's a backcountry stuff. And that's how I ended up um, coming back to Colorado and starting my career in emergency medicine. Okay. I didn't know if it was that or your special forces, if you were you know, combat medic or something like that, that got you going in that direction? No, it wasn't that cool. Um, I was a weapons and a commo guy, which we were still pretty cool. We had like, we were experts in all type of weaponry, foreign and and domestic. And also we had like a cool satellite dish that pulled it out of our backpack and we didn't encrypt code and that kind of stuff. So, Still pretty cool, but not as cool as the medics. Um, <laughs> the the deltas on the teams were the paramedic equivalent, and I would say that they actually bridged somewhere between a doctor and a paramedic. <clears throat> but the amount of MOS schooling was a lot longer than weapons and camo. And as an early twenties soldier, <clears throat> I wanted to be done sooner. Um, I did grow to regret that because when I talked to my buddies, they went to Fort Sam Houston, which is the medical base, and it is full of nurses. So they were there for a couple <laughs> years with just nurses and uh, and short hair. Yes, yes. So the we um, yeah, I, I was leaving at that, so that, I did regret that. But but <laughs> no, so I wasn't a medic. We did cross over with um especially since we had such small teams we did end up doing a lot of trauma not what would encompass like a street ems provider that works with um, medical emergencies as much you know the army deals mostly with um, early 20s acute trauma right so i I did have some of that so i did have that foundation when i um, started off the foundational provider level which is emt so, and I had seen things that didn't make some of the things I was seeing there. I had those exposures, so I was wasn't um, shocked by seeing people twisted up and burned and bleeding that kind of thing. Right. So, so that that did work. And is that what you're continuing to do primarily now? Well, I've done it for twelve years. Uh, I initially came back from the thing with my dad and joined a search and rescue team here in Colorado and really tried out. It's not a, you you have to try out. Um, I shadowed them for about five months and was try out. That was about a year process. Took my EMT, which at the time was about a six month thing. And I just delve into that 
um, knew the EMT was way too limiting. Um, and so I realized that the paramedics were the ones that were really in charge. And so my goal was to get my paramedic. And so by the time I got through all my basic um, search through search and rescue, EMT and my paramedic took about five years. And I lived in that world, which was totally different than my off-road. And I, and nobody knew me. Um, that was different. You know, I was used to moving in circles where um, I was known and celebrated. And when I got there, I was another EMT, another paramedic. And that's okay. You know, it, EMS work is not about you. It's, you know, it's about the people you're helping. So um, it was a good, it helped me cleanse from that time. And from that, I started doing instructing. I got recruited uh, to be an instructor for EMTs and paramedics. And so for the last 12, 12 years, I've been doing that, being a primary instructor at the Denver Paramedics and being a street medic and doing search and rescue. To add to that, three years ago, I added a canine as a partner. So I currently have a canine partner and she doesn't do the medical stuff, but she will um, travel with me on helicopters and travel with me on snowmobiles. She'll hike with me and she's a tracker. So she tracks down patients or people. And then if they need medical care, then um, I'm the medic as well. So it's kind of a really cool uh, thing to be an EMS. That's interesting. <clears throat> the, uh, th- that, that the canines, it's amazing to me what, what we have done with our relationship with, with dogs, you know, throughout history, mm-hmm. but you know, the, yeah. the, everything, I mean, it's, it's amazing how that relationship and how close the canine and the human are to each other um, with, with uh, I don't know what would you call it. It's a, like a mutual aid almost, whether it's, it's um, you know, as a service dog or as, you know, a, a war type situation or rescue type situation or, you know, TSA mm-hmm. type things. I mean, it's really... It's it's really a a crazy, in a great way, um, relationship. Yeah, it's uh, it's really rewarding. Um, my dog's name is Valkyrie. She's a Dutch Shepherd, super awesome, dedicated. Um, she is put in dangerous situations and does well. Um, she's a really good. She's an air scent dog, which means she she will track on the ground, but she will track you by the by the smell that you and the skin flakes and things like that, that you put off in the air to track you that way. <clears throat> but um, it's super neat. It's, it's a neat community all in itself. Search and rescue has their specialties, um, command and drones and general troopers, medical canines, ATVs. So it has all these really kind of neat things where they fracture off to, but I have the one I love, which is having the canine plus being the paramedic. So it's really a, a cool spot to be in. Um, and then teaching, I, I love to teach. Like I said, I've been a full-time teacher for um, my own EMT academies, um, IV courses, tactical courses, for, which is like a care under fire for police departments. Um, I do a, do a cadaver lab 
um, at birthing. So OB obstetrics for emergency medicine. So I've been doing all that stuff. Wow. And that's been a, that's been a real love. And actually the, when I saw you in Moab, I had, um, resigned from my position, um, with Denver paramedics that day. And that's where I was doing that teaching academy. And I had decided that I was going to actually come back to the off-road world at least part-time because I had done full circle. Like I said, I sort of cleansed. I came back to Moab. I wanted to see, does anybody still remember me? <laughs> not, that that's <laughs> totally, not that that's totally important, but it's something to see if, you know, I um, can come back to the community and not have to start from zero. And when I saw you at um, Grandpa's Garage, that was part of that for me. I wanted to um, shake hands, hug people's, um, look in people's eyes, see if I was still part of that community. And uh, I was very welcomed. And even though I've been doing Ultimate Adventure with um, with the cronies and the fellas every year still, that's been kind of my connection with the off-road industry. I haven't gone to SEMA. I haven't been going to Jeep Safari too much here and there to help guide, but very little. Um, so it was a real um, privilege for, for you to ask me to be on the podcast. And it was also affirmation that um, maybe there's still something to be done here. I, I think so. I mean, the enthusiast part of our industry is becoming more, um, oh, what's the term I want? Um, experience driven. Okay. Instead of instead of just owning a vehicle and going out with a couple of friends and doing local stuff, I see the Uh industry expanding into into getting experiences with others that share the same interest in the in the industry, but um that enthusiast wants to get closer to the center and mm. part of that is being with people that that have a lot of experience and can take them places and give them that experience kind of like you know the uh like jeep camp or you know some of yep. those things that are going on um people want those experiences now instead of just reading about them well, that's good to hear. I, just because um, some of what I'm doing now, I'm still going to be still going to do paramedic work. Uh, I think I'm going to do some wildland fire paramedicine over the summer <clears throat> and do some of that. But start. I'm actually from my trip to Moab, where I just saw you a couple weeks ago. I heard a lot of that, sort of echoed by many people. Um, made a contact out there with Overland Expo. And they're actually hiring me, contracting me to be one of their instructors to start traveling with them and teaching winching techniques and driving and all that kind of thing. Awesome. And I have to admit, I've never been to one. Um, they seem really organized. And I looked over it, talked to people, and I'm like, wow, these are big events. Um, and it actually is exact, echoes exactly what you just said. They're coming there for this experience. And that's why they thought I was a good fit because of um long time experience and so and knowing how to teach yeah and so yeah my teaching thing and i have to tell you um special forces 
we were really teachers first. Uh, and I didn't really think about it, but we used to be, our job was called force multiplication. And you see a lot of the kind of the Rambo movie stuff and that kind of thing. But ultimately our job one was teaching and our job was to go into um, areas and teach uh, the indigenous population that fits the agenda of whatever's going on. I won't get into the politics of it, <clears throat> but um, movement tactics, how to use NATO weapons, all that sort of stuff. So we did force multiplication through teaching, and I really loved it. And I didn't really thought myself as a teacher and once i got into ems i was teaching i'm like wow i really do love this and but that combined experience i think is going to really bolster my ability to drop back into teaching some of these skills to to the new people to the industry at these expos and and otherwise <clears throat> i i think i think it's a great fit you know from from what i know of you and you know i mean I can't say that we were ever great friends, but we were acquaintances and mm -hmm. I would, I, I would watch your, you know, your progression. Um, cause I've always tried to figure out what it is ultimately I want to do. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I didn't want to give up the competition scene because of the, everybody else had, and mm -hmm. I was still the only one, you know, at this point I was like really the only one doing it across the country. You know, right. there was, yeah, there was little pockets of competitions going on at certain parks or whatever. And, you know, maybe a state here or there, but, you know, club type things, but it wasn't, you know, the competition scene was not uh, as prevalent, but mm -hmm. yet there's still a, a lot of industry around it, you know, that, that, that the competition supported. So I and I love the competition. So I didn't want to get away from that. Well, now that we found somebody to uh to continue that, I'm looking mm -hmm. for my next phase, you know, and one of those things is, you know, of course, continuing to to build For Low magazine, but also I want more of the experience myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I see you know the the future, uh maybe not, you know, in the pure overlanding sense, but you know, there's uh there's opportunities out there to get people, you know, the experience to get the people the experiences that they're looking for. So, you know, that's that's one of the avenues that I'm looking into. Well, we'll have to we'll have to continue to talk, Big Rich. Um, part of uh, I'm, I'm going to try not to self promote here, but it seems like it's. Oh, absolutely. Do it. it, it it's warranted um, just because it's lens in our conversation. So what I'm doing now, like I said, I just decided I wanted to come home back to the off-road industry, but I still love paramedicine. So I'm still on my search and rescue team. Of course, I wouldn't give up my canine. So we're still doing that, but I'm starting two YouTube channels. They're both going to be really unique. The off-road one is um, wide open. You know, some product reviews, that kind of stuff, some builds, that stuff's been done. Um, but I want to cover some of the personalities as well, but also do some teaching on there. Um, I see that more as just a um, community thing for the off-road. Um, my other one is going to be for the emergency responder world. And that's actually the one that I think will be bigger just because I think the audience is bigger and I think the need is greater. And I'm going to be teaching um, skills, emergency skills, backcountry skills and doing profiles on um, responders and canine 
um, hero dogs and that sort of stuff. So that's my next thing. And I think I'll go back doing trail guiding and Moab and other, other things as well. Well, cool. So I think, so I think you'll see me showing up at Moab. I'll still continue to do, um, ultimate adventure with the gang every year. And I'm going to go ahead and do the, be the paramedic for the Overland adventure that four wheeler does as well. And hopefully get back in a little bit of racing and then kind of have my foot in both the emergency world and the off-road world and then blend them together. Perfect. Well, as so, you, as that progresses, um, let's keep in touch cause I'd love to help promote that for you. Yeah, I sure will. It's the name of it is okay. a hoplite. It's uh, called hoplite venture track. And it's, it's, I would say it kind of goes down like you're like, well, what's poison spider? What's avalanche engineering? It's similar. Um, the word hoplite is like a Spartan soldier. So it has that military tie, um, tie in with the, the bonded camaraderie of, of those types of soldiers. And that's why I used that name and venture track just sort of, when you just say it, it sounds like sort of adventure and track, almost like a quest and, put those together and I think it's a name that people won't know what that is, but we'll look if for I it. Can, but if I can repeat my successes with, with logos and names in the past that I have, then I think it will be so unique that people will know it and won't confuse it with anything else. And and what's the spelling on that hoplite? It's um, H O P L I T E. Okay. That's what I had written down. Yeah. And, and then um, Venture Trek, T-R-C. Yeah, kind of like V-E-N-T-U-R-E-T-R-E-K. Okay. <laughs> that was tough. That was tough, Rich. I didn't <laughs> want to misspell on, on your podcast. You know, <laughs> well, the great thing is but, if you had, we can yeah. we could always, you know, edit it and then redo it. So not a no, problem. No, it's all right. It's, it's a, I'm not, I'm not um, flawless. It's, I wouldn't want you to do that. So, But do rewind it. Make sure I spelled it right. And if I, I didn't, then just correct it. Whatever. No worries. But, um, yeah, I started, uh, I started the, the website and started and the YouTube channel series will probably start probably July, August. We've already started um, some of it, but um, I'm in a realm that I'm, although I know the subject matter, the, the production end of it, I'm, I'm having to learn. So that's, that's one of the things that uh, like this podcast is just audio. To me, that's easier, a lot easier to do because um, I can edit the, it, it a lot easier than if we were doing it video. Um, oh, sure. You know, these guys that are, you know, like Fred and, and some of these others that have their their YouTube channels or channels that they're you know they're producing the video audio and all that together i mean it just seems to me like i'd need a production staff where you know with the podcast i can do just shelly and i can get it out mm-hmm. and get it yep. out relatively quickly um same with our magazine you know that's one of the great things about owning your own magazine is without all those those layers is that you know, if something happens today, you know, mm-hmm. and we're in the process of editing the next issue, I can put it in there. I can do anything sure. I want, you know. Right. So I can always be faster than everybody else. Not, yeah. you yeah. know, maybe just not uh, as much coverage as some of the guys that have been around forever. But that video production, man, it just seems like a lot of work. Well, it is. I definitely uh, jumped off the cliff with that one. And it actually inspired 
um, by Fred and Dave because when I went to Moab, they're part of my circle and riding with them and just kind of feeling it out with my buddies and Trent McGee as well and Vern, Simons, Christian Hazel. Yep. Not, to, not trying to name drop, it's just that's kind of my circle, but they're in touch with this stuff. Yes. And I was like, what is there to do in the off-road industry? Like, um, I don't need to be a rock star anymore. And it just, you know, I don't, I'm not driven for that, but I still want to, I still love the community. What's there to do here. <clears throat> and that was their recommendation. They're like, Hey, you have this vast experience in these different ways. Um, they're doing their dirt every day show and yeah, Fred and Dave are not doing the production part. So they're, they're not feeling the pressure of that. Um, but they're also um, on a schedule and stuff like that, which I will not be. And, but they were that, they really pushed me in this direction and I'm with you trying to learn all the production part of it is daunting, but I'll get there. Like, that's why I'm trying to put a realistic date on the, on the pod or not, not podcast, but the um, episodes to sort of start. And I'm sure a lot of them will be rougher than they will in a couple of years after I've gotten some experience with it. Oh yeah. I I've noticed that with, with the podcast, I think my interview style um, is a lot better now than what it was when I first started. I had no clue what I was doing. It was, I was, Shelly's been after me for years to do the podcast and uh-huh. she goes, you know, everybody, you know, you could, you can easily reach out to these people and get their stories. And during the beginning of COVID lockdown, we were stuck in our little hotel in te- <laughs> in Texas with like, uh-huh. you know, I had nothing to do. You know, there yeah. was there was nothing going on, and so it was like, okay, what am I going to do besides just sit here? And I said, okay, mm-hmm. I'm ready to do this podcast thing. Yeah, and so uh, it was jump in with both feet, and uh, you know, I wasn't worried about equipment. I wasn't worried about quality of of sound. Um, you know, those things have just kind of morphed as we've gone along, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the learning curve is substantial, even though you, you know, anybody else might not realize it, um, unless they've tried to do it themselves, but the video mm-hmm. is just adds a whole nother layer. <laughs> yeah. And I'm an old dog now, you know, I, I think we're both old dogs, but, um, <laughs> well, well, I will let you know, um, when they start coming out, you can let me know if they, uh, are poorly done, and maybe I should go in back to doing something else and stick with the <laughs> paramedicine and canines. So. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna but, watch on it. So <laughs> watch what you're doing. All right. Well, Rich, it's been a real honor. I I really do appreciate um, you asking me to come on, and it was it was nice to tell the story, and uh, hopefully uh, you get at least more than um, three people to to tune into this interview. Oh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people <laughs> tune in and, you know, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing, um, your life and, uh, what you've done in off road and, and what you're doing, where you're going with everything. And, uh, you know, opening, opening that window to us. It's, uh, we appreciate it. Well, off road community has been good to me. It has and said, I've had some, had some ups and downs, but all of us that have been, in it for a while, or if you're in anything, it's just going to be the way it is. But like I said, I feel like I'm, I'm coming home and look, look forward to seeing you guys' faces more. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming, coming on, on and uh, sharing. 
take care, and uh, we will talk again. All right, sir. Thanks, Rich. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Big Rich. Please let your friends know about this podcast. Let us know what you think of Conversations with Big Rich. Please forward ideas to me, contacts of those that I should attempt to interview, leave a rating on any of the services you found us on. We look forward to your comments and ideas. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and grab all the gusto you can.